no distinction that we are all saved by grace through faith and in Christ alone. For that is the labor of which Paul has undertaken in his letter to the Galatians to direct to them that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. If you have a Bible, open with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we'll be looking today, kind of beginning verses 1 through 10. Ultimately, I think it's going to take about three weeks to get through this paragraph of Paul's writing, but we want to continue our journey through what is almost Paul's introduction. You remember back to chapter 1, he just launched into his argument immediately. And through the end of chapter 2, Paul continues this path of describing and defending his ministry. He's defending the faithfulness and the unchanging truth of his ministry and of the truth that he has proclaimed. So today as we begin looking at Galatians chapter 2, we're going to to look at this under the, the overall heading of faithful battles for the true gospel. In faithful battles for the true gospel. And it's in these verses that Paul outlines for us how to faithfully fight for the truth. And that's important. Every word of that is important, that we are faithfully fighting and battling for the truth. Many will fight for the truth. Understand that many will pick up their scripture to defend what they believe is true. But we must do so faithfully. We must do so biblically. We must submit ourselves to what Scripture shows us to how we are to take up arms, to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and fight the fight of the faith, to fight for truth. We'll see in this text ultimately over over a few weeks that Paul stood for the gospel. Paul also identified false teachers. And then lastly, we'll see that he made wise use of solid and biblical partnerships. And that's the general overall outline of Galatians 2, 1 through 10. That is how we fight battles for the truth. And again, we'll, we'll look at this, I think, over the next three weeks and, and see what the Lord has in store to teach us for how we might stand in an age where the church must stand for the truth. To reduce this paragraph into kind of a single idea, to give you a, a thesis or, or a main purpose, we say that the battle for the true gospel requires faithful saints joining together in mutual submission to and proclamation of the biblical gospel to make war against the deceitful schemes of false teachers. That's these 10 verses in a nutshell, that we must join together with faithful believers to defend the truth, to proclaim the biblically true gospel, to hold to the entire counsel of God's word in order to make war, to make war against the deceitful schemes of false teachers. So with that, let's read our text, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to guide our hearts and our minds this morning. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 1, this is the word of the living God. Paul writes, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. 
But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who are of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we do indeed ask you to humble and illuminate our minds as we seek to read and study and understand the truth. Lord, we know that you call your people to to stand firmly upon your word, to hold fast to the faithful word of the truth. You describe your church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are the support and the proclaimers of the truth. And so, Lord, we know that from that we must hold firmly. We must make war against every evil thing, every false thing, every false teacher and false proclaimer. We must identify those And we must make war against them with the sword of the Spirit, which is your word. Lord, as we study today, as we look at the the heart of what the gospel is and what it means, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would, would guide our hearts and guide our minds. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive and apply the truth. Lord, for if your spirit does not bring your word to bear on our hearts and souls, then we have gathered in vain. So, Lord, by your grace and for your glory, we pray that your spirit would move powerfully in and among us this day. Lord, may you receive all honor and glory and praise. For worthy are you, O Lord, who sits on the throne, and worthy is the Lamb who was slave to receive power and glory and dominion and praise forever and ever. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So knowing the context here, we, we set up Galatians chapter 1 over the last number of weeks. We know that Paul is getting ready to launch into defending why salvation is by faith alone and not through works of the law. Chapter 1 ends with Paul talking about how he went up to Jerusalem, but then he left again. He had not come under, under the leadership and the apostleship of Peter and, and John and James, but rather he was 
off in other areas, proclaiming the gospel. He had received a direct revelation of Christ from Christ, and so he was off doing his own thing. And so now as we look at this text, I want to just take just a minute to, to introduce the, the overall direction that I want to go the next three weeks as we consider this text, because if we don't know where we're going, we don't understand the importance of what we're looking at today. So friends, the battle for truth is upon us. The days where the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we must stand firmly upon the word of God against the attacks of Satan, are here. Now those days have always been here. Since, since Adam and Eve in the garden, Satan has sought to bring down those who follow the Lord. But for the church in the United States, and even narrow that down more, for us as Grace Covenant Baptist Church in Arab, Alabama, our time to stand against the culture has come. Friends, it's too late to change the culture. The culture is gone, it's gone over the cliff, and so we are in a day where we must stand against the evil of the world around us. And friends, as fellow saints of the Lord God, we must know that this stand for the truth will not be popular. Jesus told us that the truth would divide Rather than bringing peace, Jesus said that the truth, a hard stand upon the truth, will divide families and friends. You know his words from Matthew 10. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus did not come so that we would walk in unity with the world and the culture around us. He walked so that we would be a light. A city set upon a hill whose light cannot be hidden because we look nothing like the culture and we wage war against that which is not pleasing and honoring to the Lord. I've already mentioned Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's great description of the Christian spiritual armor. Ephesians six seventeen, he said that we must take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We must take up that sword and we must wield it. We must wield it in submission and in the power of the Holy Spirit, but we must wield it nonetheless. We are called to take up and to put on that armor. The world around us has been given over to lies, to falsehood, and to deceit. If you've listened to MacArthur preach over the last few years, you've probably heard him talk about the fact that we are living Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We live in those days where the wrath of God is revealed because men suppress the truth because they love that which is evil. They love their sin. How do we know this? Paul says that the people have been given over in Romans 1 to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Friends, you know that we live in an age of degrading passions where men and women exchange their natural function for that which is unnatural. 
You, you see this in the culture around us. Anytime you turn on the TV, anytime you watch the news, anytime you scroll through social media, you understand that men and women have turned over their natural function for that which is pleasing and gratifying to their flesh. Even, I think, greater and beyond that, we see through, through almost everything in, in the culture around us that the people of the world worship the creature rather than the creator. Again, that's Romans chapter 1 in a nutshell. They're giving, given over to the passions of their flesh, and they worship, they adore, they serve the creature rather than the holy creator that made them all. We live in a land that no longer seeks to honor God in any such way, but especially in the public square. We, we live in a nation where people would prefer the slaughter of unborn babies rather than to address the evils of sexual deviance, sexual immorality, and all kinds of impurity. We would rather give somebody an opportunity to end the life of a baby in the mother's womb than to address the sin of sexual immorality. That is our country. That is our culture. We must stand against this. We live ultimately in a place and in a time especially where good is called evil and evil is called good. Friends, that is a biblical principle brought to bear on our culture, on our land. We live in a world where false teachers are prevalent. The scripture promises us that those false teachers will become more prevalent. Turn with me, if you will. Hold your place in Galatians. We'll be back there, but turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and then we'll read on into chapter 4 as well to get an idea of what scripture says the culture will look like in regard to false teachers. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll pick up in verse 1. Paul writing to his son in the faith. This is Paul at the very end of his life. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy. They'll be unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, and haters of good. Think about that haters of good when you see a pastor who just wants to stand and, and shepherd his people through the preaching of the word be dragged off and thrown into prison just one country away. The, the culture, both here and abroad, are haters of good. Paul continues that they hold to a form, verse 5, hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. He says, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, and always learning and never being able to come to the knowledge of the truth. If there was one verse that described our day, it's that verse right there, number seven, where people are always learning and never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Dear friends, we have the truth. It's God's word, and therefore we must come to the knowledge of the truth by coming under and in submission to God's word. Continuing on, uh, dropping down to verse 12 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being 
deceived. Drop down to chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is a serious charge. He said, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, all of these with great patience and instruction. Why must Timothy do this? Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Say, wow, that is our day. People turn aside from the truth because they want their ears tickled. They want to hear what is pleasing and pleasant to them. What is our response to that? Verse 5, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, but you be sober in all things. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Friends, when we fight against and engage the culture, that verse should undergird us, that we are sober-minded in all things, that we willingly bear up under and endure hardships. We do the work of an evangelist. We go out, which this is what we'll look at in a few minutes, we go out and proclaim the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ, and tell souls that if you don't repent and believe, you will go to the place of eternal fire. And we fulfill our ministry. Each one of us has a ministry entrusted to us by the Lord. And he calls us to engage the culture by fulfilling the specific ministries that he calls us to. Again, this is how we engage the culture. Now, just one quick note. We understand that, yes, we are to engage the culture, but this battle for the truth has crept into the church. This battle for the sufficiency and the efficacy and the authority of Scripture has crept in unnoticed by many into the church. It's crept into the church through things like the social justice movement. These things have crept into the church through things like the battle for, for the roles of women in the church. Can a woman teach or preach? Can she be a pastor? These are things that, while maybe not primary gospel issues, they attack the authority and the sufficiency of the Scripture. So while they may not be level one issues, if we want to be real technical about what is a gospel issue and what is not a gospel issue, these things tear at the, at the strings of the authority of Scripture. And if Scripture is not authoritative, then it is meaningless because it says that it is authoritative. So we must battle against culture and we must battle against so-called believers who want, to, who want to undermine the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word. So now, dear saints, now is the time to stand now is the time, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we must make war against falsehood and stand against evil. We must destroy strongholds and worldly speculations. Now is the time that we must take captive every thought. We must destroy speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we must destroy those things and make them obedient to Christ. 
Now, friends, is the time to prepare to make that stand. We must prepare ourselves to faithfully fight battles for the true gospel and, as we just said, for the overarching truth and authority and sufficiency of God's word. We'll get to this at the end, but it's not enough just to say we all agree on the good news of what Jesus did and that's enough. Yes, the the work of Jesus is sufficient and it is enough, but you undercut the entire thing if you lose the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. So that's a long introduction. That that is a long way home to get to Galatians chapter 2. But Galatians chapter 2 is a wonderful place to start understanding how we fight these battles. This is the Holy Spirit-inspired version of how Paul stood for the truth and fought against error in his day. So today we want to look at verses 1 through 3, Galatians 2, 1 through 3, and consider the testimony of the true gospel. Read those verses again, and then we'll dive in. It said, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So this event of Galatians 2, 1 through 10 is exactly what Mike was just reading for us in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. It's recorded here and in Acts 15. And in referencing this event, Paul is ultimately making the point that he went to these leading men of the church who were converted from Judaism to Christianity. He went to them and he submitted the gospel that he proclaimed. And they said, yes, we agree that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that he went to those who were of reputation and he shared with them the gospel. We'll get more into that idea, who are those who are of reputation, as we get into verses 6 through 10 here in a couple weeks. Um, but just, just so you know, you can kind of take this and set it to the side. These men of reputation, uh, I think we'll see clearly that they were just the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He's not talking about the Judaizers, those who were Pharisees or unconverted from Judaism, but he's talking about these men who were the leaders of the church. So now we must ask the question, what gospel did Paul proclaim? He says, I went up to these men of reputation and I submitted to them the gospel that I had proclaimed to the Gentiles. What was this gospel? Surely it was the exact same gospel, the exact same way to salvation that we see in Acts 16.31 with the Philippian jailer. What did, what did Paul say to that man? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and all of your household, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, I think from an analytical reading of Acts chapter 15, it becomes very, very clear that those leaders of the Jerusalem church had no issue with with the gospel that Paul was proclaiming. As we read in verse 9, Peter stands up and and he says that, that God made no distinction between them and us, between Jews and Gentiles, and that the Jews, the, the Gentiles' hearts are cleansed the same way that the Jews are. 
by faith. He then continued on and he said, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, the yoke of the law. But, Peter continued, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are also. So Peter stands up and says, this is the gospel that we have proclaimed. Peter says that. And then after that, Luke shifts immediately in Acts 15 to Paul and Barnabas and talks about how they were sharing their testimony of God's work through, through their ministry, through their proclaiming of the gospel. And don't you think that if Paul had stood up and said, well, you proclaim that, but we proclaim something else, Luke would have recorded that. So, so just a, a little analysis there. We understand that surely the gospel that Paul proclaimed was the exact same that Peter outlines in verses 9 and 10. So Paul makes clear then that he goes to Jerusalem to these men who are of reputation to present to them the gospel that he proclaimed, to present to them for their examination or I think maybe more aptly, for their confirmation. You say, why did Paul do this? Well, you know, he said that he had received the gospel directly from Christ, so why did he go and submit his gospel for examination or confirmation from these other believers? If Paul was an apostle of the same authority of Peter and James and John, why did he want their confirmation? Simply stated, Paul said he wanted to be sure that he had not run in vain that he was not running in vain, that, that he and the other apostles were indeed proclaiming the same gospel. Was Paul questioning the revelation that he had received, that he talked so strongly about in Galatians chapter 1? Surely not. Rather, he sought confirmation that he was not fighting this battle alone. He wanted to make sure that he was not preaching a gospel that was not being preached by those other apostles whom he was surely referencing their, their work and their apostleship and their authority as he went from town to town to town proclaiming the gospel. Again, consider what he said in, in chapter 1, Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. He said, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There was no wavering. There was no wondering. He was not going to be willing to, to tweak his message had those Jewish believers, those Jewish converts stood up and said, well, no, Paul, you need to add this or subtract this. Paul knew that his gospel was directly received from Christ. Paul knew that there was no effort of proclaiming the gospel that would be in vain. He said that he wanted to, he did this for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Paul knew that proclaiming the gospel was not vanity. That's evidenced by the work to which Paul gave his life, going from place to place, town to town, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. He needed to ensure that he was not running alone, that he was not running against the current of those who would be named as his partners in the gospel. He wanted to be sure that his ministry was not going to be worthless or, or undercut or undermined because those who, who were considered to be his partners in the faith were preaching a different gospel. Matthew Henry describes it this way. 
He said that Paul wanted to ensure that he did not stir up opposition against himself, and thereby either the success of his past labors be lessened or his future, future usefulness be obstructed. He wanted to make sure that he didn't undercut what he, the work that he'd done and that he didn't bring unnecessary resistance to his future work. Henry continued. He said, Nothing more hinders the progress of the gospel than differences of opinion about the doctrines of it. Nothing, read that again, Nothing more hinders the progress of the gospel than differences of opinions on the doctrines of it. If you want to slow the progress of the gospel, bring something in to divide the church, to divide the message of the church. That is how you slow the progress of the gospel, by tweaking and, and changing and twisting and even perverting the message of the gospel. That will bring to a stop the progress that God is making, not because God can't overcome that, but because God is not going to honor someone who wrongly proclaims his word. Henry continued, he said, especially when they occasion, so these things hinder the progress of the gospel, especially when they occasion quarrels and contentions among the professors of it. It was enough to Paul's purpose to have his doctrine owned by those who were of greatest authority, whether it was approved by others or not. Paul wanted his message to be received because he wanted all of that weight and all of that authority to go along with what he proclaimed. Again, doctrine divides. Truth divides. The specific things that we believe about the gospel, the specific things that we believe about the outworkings of the gospel are important, and they should, and they must divide us from those who believe otherwise. Yes, the gospel is the root and the core uh, of what we are and what we do. But there are specific outworkings of the gospel that we must all hold to to be able to work together in, in the call to do the work of an evangelist. So again, was, was Paul concerned over the veracity of his message, over its truth? No, absolutely not. Was he concerned for the effectiveness of his ministry and, and ensuring that his ministry and the message that he preached lined up with those who were of reputation, those who held sway in the Jewish community? Yes, absolutely, he was. Would he have changed his message if those men had disagreed with it? Absolutely not. For the next paragraph in Galatians, picking up at verse 11, he tells about how he opposed Cephas, Peter, to his face, because Peter's life and doctrine were not lining up. Paul was committed to the gospel, to the gospel that he had received directly from Christ. So let's, let's pause here for a moment for application, and we'll get to, get to verse 3 in just a second. But let's, let's think about how, how to bring this to, to bear in our own lives. Paul was concerned about this alignment of his message with those who were of reputation. But his concern was not such that he sought to change his message, but he wanted to know who were his allies in the work of the gospel. He didn't seek to change what he said. He sought to know who was standing with him in what he proclaimed. And in this age of waging war for the truth, which is here and upon us, 
In this age, we would do well to do the same. We must develop our own convictions, not what you think, but your own convictions in submission to the truth of God's word. And then you must stand firm on those convictions. You must go to war alongside those who hold to the same convictions. We must know what God's word says. We must submit to that. It must convict us and take root and take hold in our lives. And then we must go wage war with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, with and under and by those convictions and against those who hold to different convictions. If you don't hold a conviction on something, just don't say anything. You don't have to make up a conviction. But if you have something that is a real biblical conviction, you stand upon that truth. You stand against those who contradict such convictions. We stand for truth. We do not stand for alignments with people. Again, we stand with and for and in submission to the truth. We do not stand for alignments with people. If someone goes astray, if someone leaves the gospel or brings falsehood into the gospel, to God's word, then you stand up and oppose that person because it may be your best friend It may be a church member that you dearly love. It may be your favorite parachurch ministry pastor. If they bring falsehood, if they bring in something that undermines the authority of Scripture, then you go out and contradict that because your conviction is to stand for the truth. Now, before we move on, I want to also say that there are many, many ways, again, I think I say this almost every week. If if you don't believe me on this, go pull up Facebook or Twitter or whatever other social media. But there are ways to take this stand in a wrong manner. There are ways that you do not honor God when you take this stand, if you do it wrongly. But if we follow the prescriptions of Scripture, if we address private sins privately, And sometimes, as we'll see later on in Galatians 2, public sin, sometimes more publicly. If you address things in submission to Scripture, always while speaking the truth in love, you will honor the Lord. You will be a good soldier of Christ. So let's not make war just for the sake of making war. Let's speak the truth in love and let's submit ourselves to the Scriptures and how we address that which is in opposition to the truth. Now Paul continues his testimony of the basics of the gospel in verse 3. He says, But not even Titus, who is with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. This Greek convert was not compelled by the Jerusalem council, those leaders of the Jewish church, the true Jewish church, not even this Greek convert was compelled to be circumcised. Again, remember what Paul is going through here. It is the idea of faith and works, battling it out between Paul's message and the message of the Judaizers. He says, look, not even Titus, who was there with me, not even was he brought into submission to the law. Paul makes it clear that not only his doctrine was approved by these pillars of the church, but his practice of this doctrine was approved by the by these pillars of the church. And we could wade into some deep waters in talking about um, 
circumcision and the practical discussion that surrounds the law and grace and, and how do they work together? What is our freedom and liberty in Christ? I want to just talk about that for just a second. This is not exhaustive by any stretch, but just, just think about this for just a moment. Acts 16, verse 3, Paul says that he took, or Luke says that Paul took Timothy, Timothy, not Titus, Timothy this time, and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in the parts where, in the region, in the area where Timothy was going to be ministering. For they all knew that Timothy's father was a Greek, that his mother was a Jew, and that he had not then been circumcised. So Timothy had to be circumcised. Titus was not compelled by Paul or the Jerusalem um, council, those, those leaders of the church, to be. So clearly we see that the adherence to the law was, was not, um, it was seen as a matter of preference and really practicality in, in this sense, depending on those to whom you were ministering. Flip back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You all probably know where, where this is going. 1 Corinthians 9, and we'll pick up in verse 19. And we kind of what we're seeing here is the practical application of, of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win more Jews. To those who are under the law, as one who is under the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as one who is without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Paul says, All these things I did so that I could go preach the gospel to these people, so that they would hear the gospel. MacArthur offers helpful clarification on this. He said, Paul circumcised Timothy. Because Timothy was half Jewish. He was not making a concession to the Judaizers when he did this, but rather giving Timothy a closer identity with the Jews to whom they were to witness. He did this so that they could reach into the synagogue and go in and proclaim the gospel of Christ. Timothy, MacArthur continued, Timothy was circumcised as a Jew and not as a Christian. The circumcision had no relationship to Timothy's salvation, but simply gave him entrance to those synagogues from which otherwise he would have been excluded. Paul says, I became all things to all men. Timothy became all things to all men so that we could go preach the gospel to these men. So ultimately, Paul testifies to the Galatians here in Galatians chapter 2 that his gospel was examined by these leaders of the Jerusalem church, the leading church, the mother church of the day. And his gospel was found to be faithful. While Paul was not seeking the approval of man, he was seeking the approval and the agreement from the church that came in the confirmation of the truth of his message. Simply put, when faithful leaders of a faithful church commended Paul's message, he was shrewd enough to 
use that commendation to, to carry weight elsewhere. It was not a crutch, but it was a, it was a tool. It was an instrument that he used to say, look, even these Jewish converts said that this is the biblical gospel. This was what Paul used to fight for the truth. So now, in summary, let's ask ourselves this. What of us, church? Would our proclamation of the gospel stand up to the examination of the biblical scholars, the modern-day trustworthy church leaders of our day? Ask yourself, what is the gospel? What is the good news? You know the most basic sense of what the good news is. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll read these verses. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is the gospel, what Paul is saying. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to more and more and more people. Friends, that is the brass tacks, basic root level gospel that Jesus, the God-man, came, that he was perfect, sinless, holy, that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead on the third day. That is the gospel. But how is such a salvation then activated? Because that is the good news. So how does that good news become real to us? That good news becomes real to us only by faith. So what we read earlier from Acts 16, 31, to believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now being saved, of course, has results. You no longer love your sin. You are no longer a slave to your sin when the Lord has saved you, but rather you hate sin and you continually repent when you break God's law. So what is the good news of the gospel? That Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead according to the scripture. What is the good news of salvation? The good news of salvation is that when you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can and will be saved because of the powerful and effectual working of God. What is the good news of being saved? The good news of being saved is that you will be transformed. Your desire to sin will be greatly changed. You will be sanctified, made more like Christ over time by God's Spirit, and you will, by His power, be able to resist the temptation to sin. So how does your proclamation of this message line up with what Scripture says? How does your life line up to this description of of what salvation really is. Do you love God and do you hate your sin? Do you love truth and hate error? Do you you have compassion for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and desire for them to hear the gospel so that they may be brought to life by the power of God? That is what it means to stand for the gospel. The first way that we fight the battle for the truth is in this way, in a, in a positive manner, that we have lives that demonstrate the power of the gospel and we rightly proclaim the truth of the good news of Christ and that the gospel is the only way for lost souls to be saved. This is only the first piece of the puzzle, but it is the cornerstone of the building. 
If we get the gospel wrong, nothing else matters. As we'll look at in the weeks ahead, you might rightly identify false teachers, but if you have an unbiblical gospel, you will be identifying yourself. If you don't proclaim and hold to the right gospel and go try to identify false teachers, you better point the fingers at yourself because you are a false proclaimer. You might align with like-minded churches and ministers and ministries. But again, if you have the gospel wrong, you're aligning with like-minded, but also like in the way that they are wrong, ministers and ministries and churches. We have to get the gospel right. The gospel must be our baseline, our cornerstone, our zeroing point. But hear that and also hear this. We must not bury our heads in the sands with cries of unity. When the outworkings and underpinnings of the gospel are being shredded by other wrong doctrines. We must hold the gospel in highest regard. But we can't hold this unity between churches. Think about the Southern Baptist Convention. We can't hold the idea of unity above the broader idea of truth. Theology is indeed, as you've probably heard, systematic. That is, there is a system of theology that builds together to be biblical theology. And this is why we must guard our doctrine. Because one wrong belief will eventually bring down the system of beliefs. If that wrong belief is not curbed in and brought in submission to the truth, then eventually it starts cutting away at the other doctrines because theology is systematic. It builds on itself. It comes together and forms a whole system. So we must fight for the truth. We must fight for the gospel. We must see this importance and understand that in in fighting for the gospel, we must identify false teachers. We must have good and healthy, strong partnerships with like-minded churches who are biblically sound and biblically healthy. We must do all this to stand for the gospel for the sake of the glory of the Lord. So we'll look more into this in the next couple weeks, looking at the idea of of describing and understanding false teachers and then what does it mean to form a, a biblical gospel partnership. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now and we ask,